1: The Finding Holy Podcast is where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. And you'll get to hear everyone's laundry routines. To listen to the Finding Holy Podcast, go to aahales.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts.
0: In the same way, there is some but, or yet, to those who live the happiest lives. There is no rose without its thorn. In every garden, there is a tomb.
2: Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered today. We are hearing from William Landles. This sermon was likely preached in the 1850s in London, England. Troy, would you believe me if I told you it was two years ago this month that we started Revive Thoughts?
1: Two years of sermons. I mean, I think it's about, if not exactly 100 sermons have come out of Revive Thoughts at this point. It's incredible. We feel extremely blessed. I mean, every time somebody... Writes a letter, or I run into somebody out in the social media world. I ran into a guy on Facebook just the other day. He's like, "Oh my goodness, love your show!" My friends and I listen all the time. It is incredible to me that this show has reached and affects so many people.
2: Yeah, it's. We knew, or at least we thought, it was a neat project when we when we started it, when we sat down to actually put it into place. But we. Had no idea that um, we would still be doing this two years later. And we're happy to be doing so. We love Revive Thoughts and uh, are excited to see where the
1: Lord takes it in the future. Absolutely. Every episode, we want to read a comment from someone left for us on social media. This one was not left on our actual uh, page. But I ran into a gentleman named James in a Facebook group. And he said... um, uh to, to just kind of quote part of what he said he said brother your work has been a tremendous blessing to me and some of my closest friends thank you and big exclamation marks and i want to say james it was a pleasure hearing from you and it is great to hear um from so many of you who have been encouraged by these episodes joel uh sometimes and i think this this episode and this sermon could not better encapsulate the revive thoughts and what it and even all of revive studios in some ways so, joel sometimes we get our hands on a sermon that i guarantee no one has really ever touched um, in history. this is not something that is affecting or being read and this sermon is one of those the tomb in the garden and I know this because nothing has hardly been written on the guy who preached this sermon. It took me a very long time to find shirt sure, and write it I even make sure I had the right uh, William Landells. Apparently there were two that lived in this same area in the era in the 1800s and I am. sure this is the right guy, but I mean, it was, there was some conflict. That's how confusing this was. Um, and, and this was a tough guy to write and do research about because there was one mention of him in a reference somewhere and there was his memoir that his son wrote. And I read through the memoir and this is coming from that. And that's pretty much it. And, uh, this was one of those ones that uh, comes straight out of history, completely forgotten about by the world And I love sermons and stories like this. I really, really do. I think Revive Studios is sometimes best exemplified, not when we take that famous pastor everyone's heard of, but when we take this person that is literally just gone, unknown, and we're bringing him back to life again. We do it with Revive Devos. We bring back um, devotionals from Lemuel Haynes and people like that. Elise does it over with Revive Radio, and she did it with... uh, martyrs and missionaries with Asa Kent Jannings and a lot of other people's stories that people have just forgotten. The story of God's church has been utterly forgotten and kind of shelved. And then we pick them up back up and we're able to bring them to you here on these podcasts. It's something to me that's really encouraging and inspiring about this part of the work, the forgotten pieces of God's church, but he does not forget. And when we get to reintroduce them to you, he can use them to minister to us today. So I thought that this was just the perfect episode um to do that here on yeah. the two, an- two year anniversary episode.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's a great uh, reflection of kind of the 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 soul of what revived thoughts is, isn't it? And without revived thoughts, you would have no way to know that William landles was born <laughs> in Scotland in the year 1823. He was born in a town called Eyemouth, which is Probably one of the most disturbing city <laughs> names I've ever heard. How did they get that name? Eye mouth. Like, literally, <laughs> how you're imagining it spelt is the way it's spelled. One word, though. Yeah, eyeball and, and mouth. I don't know. Eye mouth, Scotland. He was born to poor farmers, which I joked on last week's episode that, like, if you were born in the 1800s, you had an 80% chance of being born into a family of farmers. Um, and this is just more statistics to prove mm-hmm. the point. Born to farmers, he had a knack for reading, for getting lost in novels and learning, uh, so much so that it affected his other duties around the house. It affected his education. It affected his how he was providing. He was the oldest child in his family, so he was expected to provide for his family, and he did, but there are lots of instances, uh, lots of accounts of him getting just distracted because he was reading. Where Where's Landell? Oh, he's, he's been reading for the past few hours. This is a little bit off topic, but my wife finally after years we've been married uh six years at this point coming up on six years finally mm. convinced me to sit down and watch the original anna green gables with her okay. which is one of her favorite movies of all time she is my wife has red hair and so she grew up with like i'm talking with like the og anna green gables hats like from the late 70s or mm. early 80s i'm not sure when it was i've green.
1: never seen this particular picture show
2: i hadn't until recently but *Anne of green gables <laughs> Has a very similar, very similar name for a minute. <laughs> very similar personality. Uh, that's what I thought when I was when I was when I was reading about his him getting distracted uh, reading books. I'm like, just like that Anna Green Gables girl, girl just can't I stay focused
1: on her farm work.
2: Some some of the listeners will know what I'm talking about. Uh, there's all all four of you that there's there's been a lot of Anna Green Gables movies. I think over Anna the years. Green Gables is well known. It's well known. Yeah, this little girl lives in Canada. She's orphaned. She,
1: no, that that's the singing Annie, isn't it?
2: No, no, no. This, I've, oh, they're both? orphans
1: or... were very popular. <laughs> I, I thought you were joking about the movie Annie, the no. little singing girl.
2: Okay. No, no, no. Annie, the one from Green Gables, okay. was also orphaned. Okay.
1: <laughs> I really thought you meant Annie, the singing <laughs> like there's two orphan and they um, both have red hair does annie have red hair yeah annie's a red-haired little orphan girl too i'm almost 100 positive annie is annie just a rip-off of Anna green gables just a musical version singing, maybe yeah I mean, look at her you look at annie 1982 she's super red-haired little curly-haired girl there it, the musical like takes place in like new york city or something
2: doesn't it yeah okay definitely not canada though
1: no still though well i guess i it could have been in toronto and i wouldn't have known for sure Okay, but back to William Landels. Um
2: there, there wasn't much Christian in his life. His family wasn't, uh, you know, a Christian family. They had a Bible, and, you know, they knew the catechisms, but uh, even their whole village, you know, was not, they were not a very religious village. They had one church in town, and it was pretty lifeless. So uh, not a very God-fearing village, you could say. To, I mean, just to, to further exemplify this, to give an example, there was one villager who was looked on strangely because uh, he had once visited the bedside of a sick person to pray for them, and that was enough to for the rest of the town members. The to be like, I mouthians that's judgment <laughs> from them, let me tell you. The I mouthians are like, look at this weirdo over here praying <laughs> for a sick person. That, that
1: was not normal in that town. Scotland in the 1830s got swept up in a revival, and this little sleepy town got hit pretty hard. He was young and full of energy and excitement when the revival hits, so he's just the perfect candidate for it, and he became converted at one of the meetings they were having, and when they realized he had the potential to be a speaker, they had him and a few boys kind of teach at a small private house, and no one remembers what was said there. But Landells, he, he just became convinced from that moment. He's like, I have the ability to speak. I could be a speaker. And so soon he was speaking wherever he could go. It's kind of interesting. We have like two back-to-back young people who immediately jump into preaching with both feet in. Um, at this time in Scotland, there was a lot of struggle with passion for God. Um, Baptists at this time were a little bit more Arminian, and they were kind of coming in and convincing people to shake things up. He helped be a part of this shakeup for his experience of Calvinism was just this dead kind that he had grown up in where, um, where they even though people knew, you know, like the Bible, the Bible and the catechisms, it just it didn't have any effect on their lives. Uh, but despite that, he was a very serious minister and proof of this can be found in his children. Uh, just like the speaker from last week with G. Campbell Morgan, he also had four sons, who all which would become ministers, um, two of which would actually be missionaries. And sadly, one day Landles would have to preach and um, kind of write the end note of one of his sons who laid down their life on the mission field. And I, I, this is not important to that. This is not, even related to that. I mean, I just think he must have liked George Washington, though, because he named one of his kids, and there was no, like, note on this or anything. It was just, like, one of his kids is named George Washington, so I, I imagine he must have been a fan.
2: Yeah, I guess, I guess so. During this time, especially in England and Scotland, universalism was spreading like wildfire at the time. That was a very uh, popular theology that was popping up, and Landells was uh, against universalism. He didn't find the, the biblical evidence for it. He believed that, yes, God's love was for all, but you had to accept it. There was interaction that had to take place there, and it's interesting to see his account of it because he felt really bad for the young people that were struggling with truth, struggling with universalism because he could identify with them. He had been in their shoes, and he appreciated their view of God that is all-merciful and all-loving, which is true, but he would in the most kindful graceful way communicate that universalism is not a, a scriptural concept that's not found in scripture there is we have to accept the gift that god gives us and make that acknowledgement and so he managed to make friends on both sides he didn't have that hostility towards people that were in universalism and i don't know that kind of just stuck out to me that um you could tell his heart and his love for people that were were trying to make sense of their faith even though that you know he knew that that that's not biblical, but he's still growing about it in a loving and graceful way. He continued to grow as a minister, and soon he began to get a name in, in Edinburgh and then Birmingham, and eventually people from London were coming to hear him speak. And like many of the preachers that we cover on this show, uh, he would go through a phase struggling with depression throughout his life. He That was something that was a part of his life, and it was something that he would persevere
1: through during his ministry. Which is interesting because in a minute, we're going to talk to you about someone else who had a very famous struggle with depression that I didn't know going into this episode would even be a part of this episode. But first, let's get to it. So he moves to London. Um, And the other thing he did while he was going through all these things, we mentioned that he was uh, taking care of his family and he, he was very it was very important to him to get the family and to do it right. I, I thought this part right here stood out to me. I wanted to read it because I think it's so easy to hear about celebrity pastors or people who are in leadership who struggle to keep their family as a priority. And there's a note in his diary one time, and it reads like this, and I just think it's cool. I think it's a good explanation. Maybe you're one of those people who tends with workaholism or something. Maybe this note is for you. But he said, stayed late at a social occasion until 11 p.m. for team food. Found little profit in it. Resolved to leave earlier so as not to miss fi- time with family duties in the future. That's not a very long diary entry, but if you're familiar with the 1800s, they kind of, there's a lot of notes like that. Yeah, like two or three sentences. Pretty short, just kind of enough to remember what happened that day. He grew famous when he got to give a big set of lectures at a very, very early YMCA event. The YMCA was barely beginning to exist, and they invited him to give these lectures. It was one of those things. And, you know, the place was filled with thousands. People were excited. And this giant organization, which Sunday he'd be huge himself, he was one of their earliest speakers. And that kind of really helped bring his notoriety. He's now in London. He has now become a pretty famous individual. Again, a, a famous individual you yourself may have never heard of.
2: He was in London during the Industrial Revolution, which by all accounts sounds like a pretty terrible place in time to be alive. Uh, a lot of smog, a lot of... Overworked labor, a lot of children labor. It sounds pretty awful. And Landells was well known to not be happy with uh, the way people were being treated, with how the economy was working, with how people were working. He would write a a tract about a dressmaker, basically pointing out that the girls in factories were basically slaves, working long hours with very little pay. Despite being how busy he was, he always found time to help other ministers and. Preachers, Alexander McLaren, who's another preacher that we've covered on Revive Thought, said that he would be remembered fondly, if nothing else, but for the way that he was always willing to go above and beyond in the service of Christian brethren everywhere.
1: We mentioned... That he had depression, and he also was around at the same time as a very famous uh, Charles Spurgeon, who was also well known and remembered for depression. If you're not listening to our episodes on Charles Spurgeon, go back; um, they're fantastic. And the one, the mo- most recent one we did talked a lot about his help with the poor, and the very first one we did was a call to the depressed, which talks about Charles Spurgeon's struggle with depression. He actually gave; it was Spurgeon who gave Landells uh, the nickname. The Prince of Lecturers, because he gave so many lectures, somehow in the middle of all these things that Landels is doing, book writing, all that, he also gave several mini-series of lectures, including that one you heard about uh, from the YMCA. Uh, In fact, he also helped form what is called the London Baptist Association, and he was and would be its second president. Spurgeon would be its third president. And these two, along with another guy, the first president, Brock, would help gather many ministers from all over London that were Baptists, and they would have conferences, they would have encouragement, um, they would just work together to make London Be a safe place a good place a growing place for baptist churches i think it's one of the reasons the baptist church became so strong was these guys were all connected and kind of working together and maybe important to remember back in the day these people were not yet famous spurgeon was i mean he's pretty famous early on but these guys weren't the legends that they would be in our mind so when these guys were gathering together they were having monthly breakfasts they were reading papers sharing thoughts working together to buy buildings all these things were happening, and they were making the Baptist movement, making this whole thing stronger, and uniting them, and they were sharing bread, and doing all these things together, it really helped grow and encourage these men, and I think it's one of the reasons maybe the Baptist movement was so successful in London, and why these men became so famous later on was because of this working together that they did, and the realization that we're better together, not apart. Also, he A little bit of his personality was shy in these meetings. He was a bit known to be a little sarcastic, a little kind of cut you down if you thought you were a little too much. Not in a mean way, but a fun, lighthearted way. He was known to kind of be a little bit of the life of the party he was. And to get an idea of his attitude, there was once an argument. This is kind of like an in-the-paper newspaper argument because that's the kind of things, you know, it was the message board of their times. And so there was an argument whether the Baptists should have a giant fund, like some of the free churches and other churches were doing, and if you would pay the ministers and from that fund instead of directly from the churches. And Landlis said, hey, if a fund like that was created, there'd be need to be qualifications to make sure just not anyone who wandered into ministry would get paid through this fund that could lead to some problems. It seemed wise. But an anonymous person wrote back in one of the papers and said, basically, well, what would you suggest? That they have some kind of training? Wouldn't that disqualify Andrew Fuller, Charles Spurgeon, Carey? And a certain anonymous preacher, never trained, who came in from Scotland has been running a successful church for 20 years, which would have been Landles. And Landles responded with, the, with a letter back saying humorously, you know, who is this anonymous pastor? We must learn of this gifted and insightful preacher, find out his secret of how he managed to become so famous and important while overcoming such large difficulties. I just thought that was kind of a fun, humorous way for him to kind of respond to what was an attack. He was really good at getting to humorous, fun places, and people really liked him. Like, no matter what you thought of some of his views and stuff, you might oh, you're kind of working with him, he was just very well liked for his ability not to be offended, but to have a good time.
2: Yeah, this was an important
1: era of great preachers in
2: London, and it was during a time where Baptists were just kind of getting established, getting on their feet, and William Landles was one of their chiefs, you could think of it. At a time when Spurgeon was famous, this would have been the man that he would have looked up to. Forgotten by many, but remembered here today, here's one of the sermons that used to engage with so many.
0: place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden was a tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. John 1941 First, sin obtrudes itself into the most beautiful scenes. You see around a cross a multitude come together to perform the foulest acts ever perpetrated. The object of their hatred has never wronged them, but on the contrary has ever blessed them. His character presented an assembly of graces such as the world had never witnessed. And now he hangs on a cross, in a garden. What a place for the perpetration of such a crime. A garden, where nature seems best fit to exert a soothing influence on the angry passions. Surely nature cannot have her sanctuary violated by such an outrage. And so the text contains a most passionate argument against the fiction that by giving them access to natural beauty, you may restrain the wickedness, if not transform the character of men. True, there is nothing in what is beautiful, whether in nature or art, unfavorable to religion, and very much by which religious feelings may be Created and fostered, and certainly they are not bad Christians who have a loving longing for nature's works. But nevertheless, the influence which these things exert depends entirely on the state of mind with which they are enjoyed. They may foster and strengthen the feelings which already exist, but they have no power to produce feelings which are not there. They have no power to change the heart so as to make bad men good. One of the loveliest scenes in the world is the site of Pompeii, but it would seem that God has preserved her ruins, that she might testify to the 19th century that she resembled Sodom in the depths of her wickedness before she resembled her in the terribleness of her overthrow. Man fell in Eden, angels sinned in heaven, in the place where he was crucified there was a garden. Second, sorrow mingles with all earthly enjoyment. In the garden was a tomb, how symbolic of human life, in which every joy is marred by some sorrow, and the presence or the memory or the prospect of death casts its shadow over all things. There is some fitness in the choice. A garden is the scene of beautiful life, where everything is fitted to minister pleasure and to erect in such a scene the receptacle of death might, without destroying the pleasure which the place afforded, serve as a useful way to remind men of the sorrows which lie so near, that mingle with our joys, and of the termination which death brings to all earthly pursuits. It is a good thing as controlling our expectations and leading us to seek after a better inheritance, to be reminded that there is no such thing here as pleasure without drawback or consequence. Most people have a tomb in their garden, for haven't they suffered loss here and disappointment there? But others that they see, what tomb do they have? Their life is all garden. It has neither desert around it nor tomb within its walls. But trust that you do not see all. The heart knows its own bitterness." Could you look beneath the surface of others, you would see even in that lot which seems so enviable, not a little which might excite your pity or surprise. Of Naaman the Syrian, it is said that he was a captain of the hosts, etc., but he was a leper. Of Haman, we read how he told his wife and friends of his good fortune, and then, yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai, etc., In the same way, there is some but or yet to those who live the happiest lives. There is no rose without its thorn. In every garden, there is a tomb. 3. The presence of Christ converts death into life and sorrow into joy. It was fit that the tomb should be placed in a garden seeing it was to contain the body of our Lord. His presence there gave to the grave a significance which it had never possessed before, and it is fit also in the case of all who are His. I like the change from the crowded unattractive churchyard to the garden-like cemetery. I like, too, to see flowers growing around or strewn upon the grave of the loved ones. The tomb in which Christ lies in the person of his members, is a seed plot of immortality from which radiant and glorious forms will spring, for that which you sow is not useful unless it dies. Because of the change which the Saviour's death is to produce in the aspect of the world, reduced by sin to a desert Physically and morally, it will yet be covered with garden-like beauty and fertility, because Christ has died. It is a sufficient pledge of its renovation that it has contained its tomb. Men are said to take possession of a country when they have buried their dead in it. So the Savior will never regard with indifference the world which contains his tomb." He will return, living and glorious to the place where once he lay dead and dishonored. And the same scene which witnessed the commencement will witness the completion of his triumph over sin and hell over death and the grave. As symbolic of how the presence of Jesus tends to change our sorrow into joy, Christ in the tomb transforms the receptacle of death into the source of higher life. And therefore... Have no tomb without a Savior in it, no trouble in which you do not seek to have the presence of your Lord. A life of all pleasure would neither be so desirable or so profitable as a life whose sorrows are sanctified by fellowship with Christ. Nor should you seek, as is sometimes done, to have the tomb of your own fashioning, saying, If I had only such and such trials, I could bear them well. I should not complain if I were only like so-and-so. No man ever got to choose his own trials. He who gives the garden gives the tomb with it, and he determines at once its position and its way. All that you need is to believe in the Christ that rose from the tomb instead of trusting yourself to do it.
1: Landels makes the point that the tomb in the garden, you know, in a place of just pure, serene nature and beauty, there's the tomb. Death always there with us to remind us that no matter how good and perfect and how pleasant life will be, there will be something to remind us that God will place there to keep in mind that this life is short, it is not permanent, and it is not forever. And I think that all the sermons that we do the ones that usually reach most people the ones that hit people is just those remembrances those ones that tell us life is short we said that in the episode recently on jonathan edwards says just this, life is short are you ready with god at the end of the day in so many ways and so many words that is what preaching and teaching and church history reminds us are you ready to meet god are you living the life that christ has called you to through salvation and through the forgiveness of sins have you are you using the gifts that he has given you to glorify him would you be able to be remembered in church history for anything not all of us will be but are you feeling confident that you're walking with god in a way or when you see those reminders when you see that tomb in the garden do you look at it and you you, do you kind of want to look away and not think about it because in your mind you know you're not there yet and you know that you're not where god is calling you to be if so i encourage you take a moment pray And ask God to use these sermons that we are bringing to you, to use the church history that Revive Studios here has been bringing for two years to encourage you and to convict you and hopefully challenge you to live better.
2: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Thomas Middlebrook. Thomas finished his PhD at Trinity in 2019. He is a pastor at Life on the Vine Christian Community. He's married and has two kids and is an Old Testament professor at Simpson University.
1: This is the end of two years of Revive Thoughts, but it's not the end of Revive Thoughts Just or the Revive Studios. I mean, we've got Mars and missionaries, Revive Divas coming out. We have more stuff coming on the way We are very excited. Please continue to join us and be a part of what we're doing. And thank you. If it were not for you telling others, if it were not for you listening, if it were not for you sharing and some of you even joining us on Patreon and things like that, we would not be able to do what we do. We are very grateful. And yeah, honestly, we just feel very appreciative that we get to do this. This is a lot of fun for us. I had no idea who William Landels was before this episode. And I I, I guess that most of you probably did not either. This was a lot of fun for me. And I get to do this all the time because you listen and you tell others.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, we, we wouldn't make the show if no one listened to it. The fact that you are listening, the fact that you can hear our voices in your ears right now, uh, is something that never ceases to amaze Troy and I, um, that it's something that people would choose to, to click on in their podcast feed and choose to listen to. Um, it's a huge blessing to us, and we are happy that we can provide uh, some content that people seem to enjoy. So thank you all so much.
1: This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. I hope you enjoyed that podcast, and if you did, I'd like to also invite you over to the Finding Holy Podcast, where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between things that really matter in issues of faith and your everyday holy life. You'll even get to hear about the laundry routines. Go to aahales.com slash podcast or listen to the Finding Holy Podcast wherever you choose to listen to your shows.